Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Jason Collier here. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. We have with us here today Brian Cantrell, CTO at Oxide Computer. Oxide's made quite a splash this fall with the release of their world's first class, first commercial cloud computer. So Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what Oxide's been up to? Yeah, well, that, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I feel that I am certainly in spirit a gray beard, although I am <laughs> biologically not really capable of growing a beard. You know, there was this kind of moment in my early adulthood when I remember I recall asking my father, you know, I'm not saying that I want one now, but that curiosity, when am I going to be able to grow a beard? He kind of gave me that slow nod, no, like this is not going to be happening. So I can actually, I, I, I'm not bearded, but um, I, I definitely have been an industry veteran. So I was at Sun Microsystems for, for 14 years back in the day. Um, spent a lot of time at Sun, and that's where I effectively grew up as an engineer. I uh, started a, a, a new storage unit, storage division inside of, of Sun called Fishworks, developed a new storage appliance, the ZFS storage appliance. Uh, Sun was uh, Oracle descended upon Sun. <laughs> I did not. So I, I loved working for Sun. Did not like working for Oracle quite so much. Um, and uh, went to a cloud computing company, um, Joyant, and was uh, Joyant was a cloud computing pioneer. I was there for for nine years, um, and uh, it was there that I met my my co-founder Steve Tuck, um, who had been at Dell for uh, for ten years prior to going to Joyant. Uh, and so uh, Steve and I were t- together at Joint, and it was a, a fascinating, informative experience. Um, we were had our own public cloud competing with Amazon and so on, uh, and really um, deploying elastic infrastructure and then taking the software that we were building and making that available for people to run on their own hardware. Uh, and this is all on commodity hardware. So I had kind of come up at Sun with these kind of design systems. And I, I was kind of, uh, I, I was running instead on on commodity hardware, seeing like, well, you know, how bad can it be? Uh, yeah, I kind of got yeah. an answer to that question. Um, things went pretty far <laughs> sideways, especially when uh, Samsung bought Joyent in 2016 and really pushed to totally new and different levels of scale. And when they did everything started breaking and things that had been a had been kind of minor issues at lower levels of scale scale just became absolutely devastating and you know as we were beginning to kind of contemplate what was next and what we wanted to go build we really realized that the problem we wanted to solve was the problem that we were really suffering with at samsung which is if you look at the the way the hyperscalers build machines Google, Amazon, Facebook, Meta, I guess, and so on. The the way they architect those machines, those machines are not available for purchase for, doesn't matter what your size is when you're outside of those hyperscalers. You can't buy these machines. And as we were having all these problems and looking at the way they had done it, we're asking ourselves, why can't, I mean, to take a super concrete example, 
the anyone running at scale is running with a DC bus bar. So you're doing power conversion. You've got a shelf that is doing power conversion with rectifiers that you get, you can cut AC in converting to DC that's running up and down a copper bus bar. And then you are having your compute elements, the compute network storage. They, these are all then mating into that, that DC bus bar. You and everyone runs that way. That Google runs that way, Amazon runs that way, Facebook, Microsoft runs that way, Facebook runs that way. You cannot buy a DC bus bar based system from Dell, HPE, Supermicro. They will pre rack a system for you, but right. you actually can. And it's that is the most basic element of running at hyperscale. There are so there were so many other innovations that the hyperscalers had developed for themselves that one couldn't buy in a commercial product. And our big belief, and I dare say a, a big belief of, of, of your listenership and of, and of you all is that on-prem computing is not going away. That yeah. Jeff Bezos, or I guess now Andy Jassy, are not going to own and operate every computer on the planet. There's a reason to run your own compute. And that may be for regulatory compliance. It may be for latency. <laughs> What's that? Latency. Um, and it may be for economics. Yeah. Like, you know, as it turns out, it's really expensive to rent all of your compute. And especially if you are a company, a modern company for whom software information technology is the differentiator. Like, do you really want to be renting all of that in perpetuity? Because, yeah. you, you know, Famously, Jeff Bezos, you know, your your margin is my opportunity. And, you know, that, it, and I think folks are beginning to realize that, that cloud computing is this incredibly important innovation and we want to have that elastic infrastructure, but there are reasons to run on-prem. And that is the gap that, that Oxide is, is seeking to address. So we started the company in 2019 with a really outsized ambition of really... Uh, rethinking the entire computer and getting out from underneath the racked and stacked personal computers and really designing this rack scale machine for purpose, hardware and software together. So true hardware, software, co-design. And I think one of the, the, the most persistent themes in my own career is the, the value of that hardware software co-design, that we develop our best products when we develop the hardware and software together. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we know this. We right. know this from the device that's in our pocket. We know this from the, the car that we drive. We know this from you know the airplane that we fly. We know this from all of the products that surround us that, that are, are delightful and have changed our lives have this element of hardware and software that have been co-designed, but you know, it's very iconoclastic in Silicon Valley. I mean, God, the number of times I heard like, Oh, we don't do hardware. It's like, Oh, okay. Cause the, you know, we, uh, and it's like, okay, so you don't, you would not invest in Apple or Nvidia or AMD right, or, right. you know, it, it's like, Oh, okay. You just, you just don't want to participate in that part of the economy. Okay. It's like, you want to, and so, you know, it was definitely an interesting experience to go to, because we had to find investors that shared that vision. Unfortunately, we did. Right. And we were able to raise money and um, really start on this very ambitious build. 
um, and that um, took us, you know, three years and change to, to go actually uh, build it. And because you need, it, it's, you know, the bar is very high because it's not, it's not enough to just build it. You need to build it. You need to think about your supply chain. You need to design for manufacturing. You need to actually uh, get uh, FCC compliance, right? You need to, act, and, uh, you know, I learned a whole lot about the the way, the importance of the FCC compliance, first of all, uh, and the way that whole process works because our rack has to have the same emissions as a 2U server. Um, <laughs> you, you don't get to, it, it, it's not like emissions per like gram, right. you, right. you know, or, or what have you. Um, and so we, we, you, ha- you have to, uh, you know, go through that, get, do, and it, it's, it's very involved. Um, but we, uh, and so we, um, we did it, we pulled it off, we shipped the thing. Um, we shipped our first racks on, in, in June. Um, and we got it landed in customer data centers and, uh, and, and run. And so it's pretty exciting. Uh, and we kind of, we did our, our formal launch of the cloud computers a couple of weeks ago. Right. Um, and it's been really exciting to see that, you know, the reason I think that there's a, there's a lot of attention on what we've done is because so many technologists have seen this problem. They've, they've, in, like we had at, at Joyent on uh, later Samsung, they are enduring all of this complexity that feels unnecessary. And they are asking themselves, why? Why do I have USB ports and serial ports and AC cabling and all of this and BMCs to go deal with and a BMC management network to go deal with and then a separate switch for that? And then, oh, by the way, when this whole thing misbehaves, everyone points fingers at everyone else or they all point fingers at me. I mean, that's the other thing I... (laughs) You know, that that I, and I, I'm sure you all have had this experience too, but God, it's so frustrating when you you are doing what you feel that your vendor is telling you to do. Like, here are our partners, you would do this switch and this software, and you put it together, and the thing doesn't work, and it's your fault. It's like, wait, what? Um, and, you know, there's a, a tweet that I loved about, like, I'm dealing with a Dell VMware support issue, and I feel like I'm dealing with an issue with my divorced parents. Um, and it it feels that way frequently and because nobody is and part of what I realized is you know there was a long time when I felt when we had some of these problems with Dell in particular because we're a big Dell customer and the you know we had uh, a, a bunch of machines in a single data center that kept dying with uncorrectable memory errors and there was a long time when I felt like I need to get to the right person in Dell who can help me understand this problem. And I began to slowly realize there is no person at Dell that's going to help me understand <laughs> yeah, this Well, it's, it's split across four different companies, maybe. It, yeah. it, it is four different companies. It is so many, it is so many different layers of software. And the, the folks that are, that actually understand the or have the ability to truly understand that issue technically have got so little exposure to the way these systems were actually deployed that they actually were not able to be to be useful on the problem. Right. So um, it, it, this is kind of when the, the the you know that slow realization that like yeah you can stop escalating now because 
there's nobody to escalate it to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You've got a company's undivided attention. I mean, you know you're on a Dell call when it's like they keep adding people to the call, right. but no, no one knows how to solve your problem. So they, you know, I, I, not, I guess I'm picking on Dell a little bit, but look, Dell, you should have, if you don't want me to pick on you, you should have solved this problem. Well, um, it's not, it's not a Dell problem. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a Dell not. problem. That's right. It is not a Dell problem. No, you're exactly right. It, it really isn't. And it, and I think that they, that's the other thing that really should be set for Dell. Like the people involved earnestly wanted to solve the problem. It's oh, not absolutely. Like they, but they couldn't because they didn't actually build the whole system. And yeah. they've got another company that, as you said, it's the four companies. You've got a, you know, you've got another company that's responsible for the bias. You've got another company that's responsible for the BMC for the software that runs there. Uh, and and th- th- this is software that is running at the absolute heart of the machine. And so when we started Oxide, it was really with the vision of we want to take responsibility for this entire system. And in order to do that, it really required us to revisit some of these lowest level assumptions. So there but, is uh, no uh, But Brian, yeah. <laughs> if you're yeah. responsible for hardware, software, firmware, and, and everything in between... This is a major, major endeavor. A major endeavor. And so you know what's funny is that as we were raising, you know, venture capitalists, God bless them, um, are don't always see the right risks. So um, VCs in particular, as we were doing that initial raise, were like, look, technically, we know you can build this. And I'm like... Technically, I am not explaining what we're doing very well then because <laughs> I really, really don't know if we can build this. And because really, the other thing is like, we have also done our own switch, by the way. Right. So we did Which our own insane. networking <laughs> switch as well. And in fact, the, the question that I was absolutely terrified of getting on Sand Hill was, what are you doing about the switch? Nobody asked about the switch. I'm like, okay, great. I'm not going to volunteer it because like, I don't want to, but there was this idea of like, oh, technically we know you can do this. We don't see technical risk here. And I'm like, you don't understand what we're doing. This thing is loaded with technical risk. And in fact, quite arguably the riskiest thing we did as a company, we did our own switch. We did our own compute sled. We did our own service processor, getting rid of the BMC. We did our own system software on all of that. But the riskiest thing that we arguably did is that we also do not have an AMI bias on the system. So we do our own very lowest level platform enablement. We don't use the software from, we've got a great partnership with AMD, but we don't use AMD software. When the, when the, the PSP come, when the PSP executes that first x86 instruction, it's not an AMI instruction. It's not, we don't have UEFI in our system. We don't have a GISA in our system. We actually do that very lowest level of platform enablement, and we boot the entire system. So we we turn on the PCI engines and so on. Are you and, talking hubris now? Is that what you're talking about? Are we talking what now? Hubris. Uh, hubris is we are the uh, hubris is the we actually yeah yeah the, people uh, just for clarification that's hubris with the capital H. Um, that is the operating system that we did on the service processor. So we actually run that on the one of the things that we had seen on the, the kind of the, the problem that Hubris is solving, uh, capital H Hubris, uh, is the replacing that BMC with a service processor that is a microcontroller. So it's, it is not one of the, the, the problems we've seen with BMCs is they are running their own general purpose operating systems on the BMC. So you've got some like down rev Linux 
sitting there. The, it, and so, oh, well, it's like we want to be able to, you know, write, you know, use OpenBMC and Python or whatever. You're just like, oh, my God, no. All no. Because then you end up, you know, I actually saw a really interesting presentation from, from HPE on uh, at the Open Source Firmware Conference in 2022, last year, where they describe with the ILO, one of the problems they have with the ILO, they can't find DDR2 anymore. So they are they have to actually use DDR3 on the ILO. So you are now going to like literally your BMC has to train its DIMMs. This is the thing that runs before the operating. So it's like we're training DIMMs so we can train DIMMs. I mean, this is like madness. And you cannot have – so we've got a much more slimmed-down service processor that does not have DRAM. There is no DDR for our service processor. We've obviously got DDR4 for the for the AMD mobile on part, we'll have DDR5 when we're on an SP5 part. But the, you don't have to have that on the service processor. So that is where – when we were looking at an operating system for that microcontroller, we were looking around with the idea of, like, let's find kind of the best – uh, the best microcontroller operating system, and we weren't really finding one that was doing what we really wanted to go do, which which was going to allow us total attestation, security, transparency, robustness, a bunch of things that we were looking for, and we wanted the thing to be small. We also wanted the thing to be in Rust. Um, so that's what we, we we did hubris because we felt it was aptly named uh, for the hubris of doing our own operating system there. Right. Um, but that that's actually and then actually we, the, the the debugger for hubris, of course, is called humility. humility. <laughs> yeah, right. So that uh, and humility has actually been um, humility has been interesting because that has ended up being load bearing in a lot of ways for us. And hubris can go into such a small footprint that we use it in lots and lots of places. So actually Hubris can run, we, we run it on an STM32H7 um, for the service processor, but it will, which is an M7, Cortex M7 class part, uh, it will also run on an M0 plus class part. So we also use Hubris on the manufacturing line to program the actual boards, to, to, to drop the firmware images onto the boards. And that is running on, on a system that has got uh, 8K of SRAM and 64K <laughs> of ROM, which is smaller than the first computer that I had. I mean, that is yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is like, I don't care how long your gray beard is. That is a legit small footprint. And the fact that we've got a memory protected multitasking operating system sitting in, in 8K of SRAM and 64K of ROM is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, so, but so that that's all on that that kind of microcontroller side. The 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 software that I'm mentioning that does that lowest level platform enablement, that is the operating system that runs on the host CPU. That's the host operating system. So the same that's what we call Helios, which is a Lumos derivative that that runs, um, are the, that acts as that the hypervisor. Uh, it also does that earliest lowest level platform enablement. Um, so you've got one operating system that you boot coming out of the PSP. And when you've got that kind of one holistic system, there are a bunch of things you don't need anymore. You don't need a CPI. You don't need UEFI. So that those just don't exist in our system. Our system is not designed to run windows as on the bare metal <laughs> or ESX. You run windows as a guest 
and you don't run ESXs all, at all. So you don't run our that that host operating system functions uh, as the hypervisor for the control plane. So yeah, it's it's a KVM based hypervisor. Is that? It's not. It's Beehive based. It is kind of similar to KVM in spirit. Um, so we, um, you know, both KVM and Beehive um, are effectively bringing the microprocessor its cup of coffee with respect to virtualization. Um, <laughs> we, because it's really amazing, right? All, all the work the microprocessor does, um, and the, um, you know, part of the reason we liked Beehive, um, KVM's origins were really started with a pure user-level machine model, Kimu, and KVM was effectively the accelerator for Kimu, and there's just a lot of hair on that. Kimu itself, I don't know if you've been into the Kimu source code, but no, it, will uh-uh. it will burn your eyes. Um, <laughs> we really wanted to do, um, we, we like Beehive because Beehive kind of postdates the, the hardware support for virtualization, um, but we also wanted to do a new machine model. So we did our own new user-level machine model called Propolis, um, and that's a Genovo Rust implementation. Um, so kind of in, the, in uh, you know, Firecracker from, from AWS um, is, uh, we took a long look at Firecracker, but really not designed to do what we needed to do, which is to run uh, multi-VCPU guests with multiple gigabytes of DRAM and high-performance I.O. and so on. So um, th- we did our own our own machine model there. But yeah, certainly leveraging the the microprocessor support for hardware virtualization. Right, right, right. Let's talk a little bit about storage, Brian. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so it's it's a ZFS-based system? Yeah, so, we, so what we have done is we really wanted to, well, so first of all, there are a couple things. One, we wanted to have the, the kind of the right hardware as, as a building block. So it is, so each compute sled has, and the system is managed holistically by the user. So you, you get the rack, you plug it in, and the, our, our, the objective was to, you're provisioning VMs within effectively hours of this rack arriving in your data center. Um, in so um, in order to be able to do that, it's important that the storage be completely self-configuring. Uh, we also wanted to be sure that that we had the ability to have a robust, reliable, distributed storage service built into the rack. Um, so each compute slide has got ten U.2 NVMe drives, um, and w- on top of that pool of storage we have a, a robust storage service, service that we've developed that we call Crucible, also again in Rust, um, that uh, allows for a, a volume to be stored in triplicate. So this is like an, an EBS-like storage service using three-way mirroring. And then of course, that you know, as you all have done storage and you know that the, 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 the challenge with storage is, is not storing the the bits and reading them back it is dealing with all of the issues that come up in that path and you know the, the ability to uh, resilver data and the, the ability for the, the that system to to uh, to operate a degraded state and then catch up and so on um so what we the the architecture that we've got for for that service is you've got a um we we create um, single ZFS file systems on top of each of those U.2 drives. Um, the reason we use ZFS in that, it, we don't just use the raw device, is that ZFS gives us a lot of capabilities that we really like from a snapshot perspective. Um, 
I, I like having file systems as it turns out. Um, but then also ZFS does end-to-end checksumming, which is really, really important. Um, and we device-level checksumming is really fraught with peril, as we've learned yeah. in a good way. So we, you've got a ZFS file system on, on each of those 10 drives per sled, 32 sleds in the rack. And then we are, the, the storage service lives on top of that mirroring three ways on top of, so your data is going to hit three different ZFS file systems effectively. Um, and that's been, um, that's an architecture that has allowed us to deliver uh, high performance while still delivering um, total absolute robustness. Um, and really the robustness obviously is the, is the constraint and, uh, and performance is, uh, the performance is the objective. Um, we will in time also have um, ephemeral storage kind of offerings where a, a an instance can have an ephemeral volume that will be on the, the that will be effectively provisioned onto that same compute sled, but won't have any of the guarantees. So this is to allow for software that is doing that replication at a higher layer. Um, and there you will have, uh, you don't have the constraints of, of having to go to three different machines. You don't, you're not going over the network. Um, so that you, you'll get, you get some performance back, but then obviously you are now responsible for the robustness. Of so, that so just, just so, uh, so I'm clear. So a VM that runs on one of these sleds, uh, it's, uh, volume storage, uh, is not necessarily allocated to that sled SSDs. That's right. Yep. That's right. It, the, 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 it's storage is. Uh, and this is frankly just like, and you, you, you much more like when you go to provision in the public cloud. You go to provision in the public cloud. Yeah, who you knows? Get a volume <laughs> that, that volume exists in the cloud, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, between, uh, so you've got this this networking serious backplane networking and switch the top of rack switch and stuff like that. Between racks are uh, just a normal Ethernet uh, cabling kind of thing. Is yeah, so we've got the, the, the we've got QSFP ports coming out the front that will go to your to to you know your networking core. Um, so yeah, I mean it is it is Ethernet coming out the front. Um, we uh, have definitely definitely learned a lot. I mean, I guess this makes sense, and I shouldn't have been surprised. But you would think that like a QSFP module is just kind of like an industry standard component, and like. I don't know. It's like an Ethernet jack. It's like mm, no, as it turns out, and it's like no, no. Sorry, if you're gonna have an Arista switch, you need to have an Arista certified QSFP module. And it's like, you know, um, it feels a little bit like a racket. I can't really tell how much of this is you know quality assurance <laughs> versus like revenue assurance. I'm not sure which of those. Uh, but uh, so you needed the right QSFP modules, right? So we've done a lot of actually our. Uh, it's been, it's actually been vindicating of a bunch of our other decisions because one of the, the problems that we had when we were de- developing software, uh, elastic software to live on commodity hardware, the validation problem becomes uh, unsolvable at some level, right? Because you've got so, you, you've, affl- you've fo- folks so much flexibility and freedom that it becomes very hard to validate configurations, especially when things operate across purposes. And this is part of like when vendors are operating at pointing fingers at one another, it's like they're not necessarily wrong at some level, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, well, it actually is kind of, and, and often like they're both right. And like, you know, you are each pointing fingers at the other and you're both right. You, it's both of your faults. Um, it, it, 
but the part of the challenge is that they don't necessarily, it just becomes impossible to kind of do that integration. So the, and part of the reason I talk about the QSP modules, because with the QSP modules, we have had to do that much more traditional, like I, you know, we need Arista QSP, Arista certified, Cisco certified, you know, we need the, the Intel QSP modules, all of these QSP modules. And then we need to verify that they all interoperate. And it's a real challenge. I'm like, boy, thank God we are only doing this here and not at literally every layer of the stack um, yeah, because yeah. it is so tough to go validate it. And because part of validating it, it's not, I mean, it, it, validation is easy when it works. <laughs> uh, it's when it doesn't work. You're going to be like, okay, let's go figure this out. And QSFB modules, like every element in the computing stack, are wildly complicated. Um, and there's a whole lot of sophistication going on there. So, um, but the, the, that, that's kind of how you connect to your broader network. We do have the capacity for the, the, the racks to directly connect to one another. And one of the kind of neat things is that the uh, because we've got these 32 ports on the front and you're very unlikely to need all, you're not going to need all those 32 ports to, to connect into a, a broader network, you can use some of those ports to connect to another oxide rack. Um, so we've got a, a model that will allow someone to grow to, I mean, uh, you, I think in principle, you could, go, you could grow to, to a, like, you know, a larger number of racks, but we're thinking on the order of four to eight racks um, without really requiring new dedicated uh, core networking, which is kind of neat. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the that network is the interface. The, the QSFP modules are the, are the the interface in the customer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I mean, if you're if you're competing against the cloud and all these kinds of things, I mean, they've got so much marketplace services that that you know make them uh, very interesting to most development organizations and stuff like that. How do you feel that's going to develop uh, with an oxide based cloud, let's call it? Yeah. So we actually don't really view ourselves as competing against the, against the cloud for whatever it's worth. Um, we view, uh, we are really competing against the extant on-prem infrastructure. We are competing against Dell, HPE, VMware, Cisco, Arista, we are competing against ODM Direct. Um, we are competing against the, the Supermicro. That's that, that's who we are competing against. It's even um, worse. <laughs> well, maybe not, but I mean, at least the cloud is only like four or five of these guys. I mean, you're talking about every compute vendor in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are, but like part of the the opportunity for Oxide is that that each of them only is only delivering a single slice, and then they're trying to monetize the, the they're trying to monetize it. You know, the, the uh, it's funny because one of the things that like we don't even think about just because of like of course the software is all built in, and of course like there's no separate licensing for the software. So you know one of the, the one of the early reactions from customers is like oh all of my thank God there's no license manager it's like no of course there's no <laughs> license manager but it's like because and we've had you know the X-Rail customers walk us through the the licensing and it's like it ain't simple um, and you, you've got a bunch of different you know at every kind of new kind of software enablement you need something else and you need to you know you it, it's a PO or a license and it's like. It's a, so yeah, on the one hand, we're competing against a bunch of folks. On the other hand, uh, their numbers are not necessarily a strength from an end user's perspective because it's making it really hard for them to actually deliver a service. 
And then when you think about it too, you're not just competing against the hardware vendors, but also the software vendors like a VMware. Yes. Yeah. I, I ordered, so, this okay. Now, you, now you've doubled your competition in one fell swoop. Yeah. You, you have, I mean, yeah, again, you have, but you, but the, um, you know, people are pretty frustrated with the state of affairs. Um, and I, you know, I've not encountered anybody who's like, God, you know what I really love is that I, I get to go to seven different companies and, uh, and I get to integrate it. Like, that's what I yeah, love. said. No one ever, right? Yeah, exactly. Said no one ever. <laughs> and the, you know, I think what, what we, um, what folks, folks want a, a, a robust offering internally for their cloud. And they're, they're not seeing a way to do that right now. And they are, uh, and you know, there've been various efforts and they've, they've, they've all been a real challenge. Um, and so, um, I, I think, it, you know, one of the things that just to get back to, sorry, to your initial question about like AWS or, or public cloud services, um, we do want to allow for a, a platform for those kinds of services, but that, that starts with, an EC2 like service, an EBS like service, uh, an ELB like service, a VPC like service, which is what you find in in the Oxide rack. And we believe that those services around Elastic Compute, Elastic Storage, Elastic Networking, th these are the services that we should expect in a modern computer. What we are doing at the most fundamental level is changing the definition of the server side computer. What does a computer look like? What should we expect to be included. And, you know, uh, AMD and, and, and other microprocessor vendors, but I've done a terrific job of changing our expectations about what we get out of the socket. I mean, there's so much now that's been pulled on package and that so much that, that we don't have to deal with anymore because it's been pulled on package. That we get that when we buy that AMD Milan or that AMD Genoa. The, we believe that the computer, the rack scale computer, deserves that same treatment and that you should expect that when you buy a computer, it, it knows how to provide these elastic services, that you're not having to provide that elsewhere because it's part of your expectation about what the machine includes. I, 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 I agree with all that, but you know, the, the, I mean, the, the challenge with on-prem computing these days is, is they're competing against this cloud, which has all this capability, all these services, and all these functionality that, that people can just tap with a credit card. And, sure. and so you want to do the on-prem service, which which means it's going to be cheaper and it's going to be more reliable and more latency sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but without those services there, I mean, arguably VMware is successful because it's got all this other software surrounding it. Well, and so, yeah, that, that's why, I mean, you know, the, part of the way we really judge the product is what is the latency from the hardware arriving to provisioning VMs? And because a provisioning a VM requires provisioning network, provisioning storage, it requires all that. It requires that metaphorical credit card swipe. And the, the latency today is in the existing on-prem world is pretty bad because of all that integration. Weeks, and, months? Right. <laughs> Right, and I and you you know, and I mean, it starts from the very, very, very beginning. But just to get really physical about it, because it doesn't, it comes in many. You got to debox this thing, right? You got to you got to rack and stack. So the first thing you're going to be doing is like someone is doing a lot of deboxing these one use and two use whatever whatever you're going to use. Cabling, you know, all that shit. 
And the, you know, one of the things that was kind of an important, you know, the, the, there have been some really important moments for Oxide that were kind of key validation moments where we all kind of held our breath. Um, and we obviously designed the system to be able to, 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 to pass these milestones, but, but there are a couple of them. One is, um, well, one actually, uh, just as a, a brief aside, one of the, the, the gutsier things we've done is we have eliminated the, 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 the cable, front side cabling. So in a hyperscale system, you are going to blind mate power in the back and you're going to have cabling, network cabling out the front in the cold dial. And as we were designing the system, one uh, and kind of talking to folks, surveying the, the, the state of the art, uh, it, some of the con connectivity folks were like, out of curiosity, why are you not blind mating the networking as well? And the hyperscalers don't do it that way. Um, so I was like, I, I didn't think that was possible. I mean, is that possible? Can that be reliable? It's like, oh, that's definitely possible. And the fact the hyperscalers will tell you, this is the connectivity vendor telling us this, the hyperscalers will tell you that's a better way to architect it, but they can't take a clean sheet of paper. So we're like, okay, that's exciting. Uh, so we, uh, that's what we did. That's what we did. We, we blind mated networking and these compute sleds slide in without any cabling. So they, when they slide in and lock in, they are, are blind mating on to at once DC power. They are blind mating on the high speed networking. They're blind mating onto the management network. And that all happens at, in, at, um, when it slots in. Attests to the other compute sleds and is immediately available to, to, to provision VMs. So the, the, the validation of that was a big like hold your breath moment. Another big hold your breath moment that is mundane, but very important for this point of the latency of rack arriving to provisioning the first VM is it is again super mundane. Is can we safely ship with the sleds in the rack? So can we design because that requires you to engineer a crate actually to make <laughs> sure that it can absorb shock and so on, and that you are not endangering those connectors, and that you can actually ship with this thing with the connectors and the sleds in place. And the reason that was so important is like, you got to get rid of these other boxes. You can't have the rack come in one box and the sleds come in 32 other boxes, right? So, and uh, Brian, just so you know, I worked at storage technology before the Sun acquisition and uh, we worked in the the Iceberg Project and we had, <laughs> we had you know, a, a, a created uh, storage system effectively. And a couple of these guys fell off the back of the trucks and stuff like that. And they came back. They were sort of bent, but they continued to work, of course. But yeah, 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 yeah. You've got a, a major challenge to try to. And in your case, it's a, a full rack, right? <laughs> it's a, it's a it, serious it, it, size. It is, it, it is a full rack. Uh, yeah, uh, for, definitely. Actually, I, I, uh, I didn't realize you worked on Iceberg. Total shout out to Iceberg. That's awesome. I, I was a, a, definitely a system. I grew up in Colorado, so. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, followed storage tech from a young age. Um, I have now passed on my, my kids are now Broncos fans. This is if I passed on. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, I, you know, they've not even been to Denver and they still are as disappointed on Sunday as I am. Um, yeah. the, um, but so, no, exactly. That you, when you're, you're engineering that crate is a, is its own feat of engineering. Um, and, uh, but fortunately blessed with an absolutely terrific operations team and, you know, have folks who understood that element of the problem. I, it was funny because we had a, 
we were doing these iterations of the crate design and he, I'm like the first crate. I'm like, wow, this is like amazing. And uh, the, Kirsten, the, the, who, who was leading up this particular effort of the ops team was like, no, 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 this one, we've got a lot of work we can go do on this one. And then the second one, the second iteration came like, wow, this one is okay. This one is really amazing. She's like, no, no, we've got some improvements we're going to make. And we, uh, you know, I just was not really appreciating how important packaging is and how much you can go do in packaging to make it robust, but that's all really important for that, that in order to be able to deliver that value of rack comes in, rack is plugged in, rack is powered on and VMs are provisioned. That's an important element of it. You also so, need. So Brian, how long does it take from, let's say a rack arriving on dock to yeah. provisioning VMs on something? L- something l- like uh, that? Literal hours. In fact, the, the, the we can get that down actually to I I think we can get that down to actually under an hour, um, but it is literally hours. God, that's and, amazing. And we have spent that is it's like a very concrete embodiment of all of the design decisions that we have made. Um, and so, because I mean, it's like it's hard to bootstrap a network, right? You've got to have. Um, we have a, we have technician ports out the front of the switch, and so you connect into the technician port. We've got an entire like it, 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 it's funny because like we, we've got the install software for the rack. Um, the folks that develop that um, all don't really weren't really coming from the on-prem world. Um, and uh, in particular, one of the engineers she was at Facebook prior to to coming to Oxide. And she's like, I don't know, like, I'm just developing some, like, awesome software to install this thing. Like, I'm not really thinking, like, I don't know, what is the state of the art? I assume that, like, I assume that everyone else has something similar. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, they really don't. And so the install experience is just eye-poppingly good. Um, where, because, I mean, you've got this constraint, right? Like, you, you're, you're not going to a browser-based config when you are direct connected into this. So with the way this works is you actually SSH in to the, the, the technician port um, and you, you, you kind of do some a very modicum of configuration and then you're in a, um, a, a, a captive terminal install experience that is a gorgeous experience and it's super tight um, and clean and debuggable if it goes wrong, right? Um, so uh, it's been really, really fun to deliver these kind of pieces that now, are... now I'm flashing back to IBM 360, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and actually, you know, one of the things that was very funny, you know, it's been, it's, it's always amusing when you kind of watch like the hacker news crowd, um, yeah. you know, what you, whenever you have a lot of attention on something you've done, um, that is both gratifying and enraging. Um, and it is very, uh, one of the comments that, that, that we thought was particularly funny is someone called it a mainframe for zoomers, um, which, <laughs> Um, you know, it's like not all wrong, right? I mean, there um, those mainframe systems. There are certain aspects that are valuable. The reason that they have persisted. Now, we are not. It is not a mainframe at all. Um, and I've got lots of. There are lots of problems with those systems too. I'll tell you, like a big problem that I have with not just mainframes, but also with other tightly integrated hardware software systems. So, uh, like phones. I mean, right, your iPhone, right? is that those systems are well integrated, but also completely opaque. So one of the things that's been very important to us is everything we've developed is open source. Um, and 
we have been very transparent about this entire system top to bottom. So you don't have to wonder, and this is one of the frustrations that I had when I, I, a customer of Dell HP Supermicro is the complete opacity into what software was actually being delivered to me. Taking a BIOS upgrade, be like, well, what's in this? It's like, well, you you know, you need to take this BIOS upgrade. You're running strings on the binary and there are a bunch of URLs in your BIOS. It's like, why are there URLs in this software out of curiosity? But trust us. You trust us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, okay, so it's like clearly like this thing is hitting some service at, you know, it's like, how who secured that service out of curiosity? Like that now like my trusted compute base has now expanded to like your website. I mean, that seems crazy. And um, it's been really important to us to deliver this really high quality integrated experience but in a way that's completely transparent. So uh, folks can see exactly what we've done and why. And um, we're, not, we're not trying to tell you that we, we are someplace where we aren't, or we've done something that we haven't done. Um, and I, you know, I think uh, we're, uh, okay. yeah. Let me, let me, I, I got, I only have like 15 more minutes or so. We're actually over time. Uh, I think it's important to talk about uh, the way you've come up with Root of Trust. Yeah. I think that's pretty unusual in this environment. I mean, everybody else has kind of tried to do it well, but not necessarily have done well with that. Yeah, so we've got a true root of trust. Um, so we've got, um, and we run Hubris on the root of trust as well. We're using the, the NXP LPC 55 as our root of trust. And uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that you have is how do you attest to, how do you have, you're going to have some, module that that needs to be signed verified and so on and then it needs to attest to some secure hardware element that can't be kind of physically tampered with and then it needs to attest to the kind of the next thing in the chain that needs to attest to the next thing in the chain right and how do you do that and part of the challenge is you know this kind of the idea of the tpm is like everyone's the tpm is kind of like the security guard that everyone's kind of like walks past it's like, well, yes, if you ask the security guard, they'll, they can ask you a question. But if you just ignore them, it's like, you know, just ignore them. And, and the, you know, there have been other roots of trust, uh, Microsoft Cerberus, for example, um, a Titan as well from Google that um, attempt to solve this for the server-side computer by interposing on SPY. So there's going to be a SPY payload that is going to be retrieved. Uh, as part uh, to, to boot the host CPU, let's interpose on SPY and the spy interposition is a real challenge. Spy is is it's too fast to really interpose on in software, um, and yet not being like really fast by any modern standards. But it's um, so. You, and and then with spy, there's also no way to. Sorry to get kind of uh, deep in the weeds here, but like unlike with I squared C or, or or now eSpy, there's no way to. Uh, you have to provide data on the clock. There's no way to say like, wait a minute, let me clock stretch. Let me get this data for you. <laughs> yeah. Let me buy myself some more time to attest this payload. You can't do that. So we were not hugely in love with spy interposition. Um, it was going to, there were going to be a lot of problems. So what we did instead, uh, which I think is pretty neat. Um, the So there is, when you are developing on a microcontroller, uh, one of the things that ARM has done really well it, over the years is developed this very rich facility for debugging a target microcontroller. Think this thing is called Serial Wire Debug Squid, and the, <laughs> it, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. 
you might know where this is going. So one of yeah, the yeah, we, okay. <laughs> so we ran the squid line from the service processor to the LPC to the root of trust, and that allows the root of trust to act as a debugger of the service processor, which means you can control every heaven and earth about what that SP does. Right, you can control right. what it executes. So in particular, what this means is when the, the root of trust comes out of reset, it can hold the SP in reset. It can then pull the SP out of reset, but direct it to an instruction of its choosing, namely an instruction that it injects, code that it injects to verify its own payload. And then it can force the, and there's no way for the SP to, to, to get out from underneath that. The service processor that can then attest its payload back to the room of trust. Yep, looks good. Now I can let you run completely. And the service processor now is running I trusted software. And yeah. it can now attest to, to, to everything the bundle that it. we're actually going to run on the host CPU. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that's, of, I think, of extreme importance is their use of Rust yeah. as, a, as a source, as a, comp- as a code. Compiler, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, all of our software's been in Rust. And that was actually, I mean, in many ways, it was like the very first design decision we made. Um, the, the name of the company is very much a tip of the hat to Rust. Um, I Oxide. <laughs> okay, I didn't get that till now. Okay, yeah, right. I know it's like the it's like a David Mamet film. All of a sudden, you got to go now. Go back and rewatch everything now that like you got the big reveal at the end. Um, the, uh, the Rust. Um, you know, I, I had been a C programmer my entire career. Um, I had Ditto. ventured up stack <laughs> into Node.js and uh, it was, um, things had not gone really well. Um, and so I, um, it, you know, as I was kind of contemplating what was next, I was really looking around for, you know, what is, what am I going to spend the back half of my career implementing in? And I was beginning, uh, I was really disappointed with everything that was out there. I was disappointed with Go, disappointed with Java. I didn't want to have garbage collection for a bunch of reasons. And I uh, started experimenting with Rust in 2018. And it's like, wow, this is really pretty amazing. This is the, the power of, a, 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 of C and of being able to completely control my system. But getting that memory safety and that integer safety and that robustness. I, I just would not have guessed a decade ago that a new programming language would have such an outsized impact on my own career. I kind of resigned myself to being in C for the rest of my career. Um, but it's been extraordinary. So yeah, we've, we, and we've used Rust um, not, I mean, it has been remarkable. Um, I, you know, we were, we didn't want to use Rust by fiat. We wanted to make sure it was the right tool for the job, obviously. But it's been the right tool for essentially every job we've done, which is really remarkable. We've used it at the very, you know, 8K of SRAM, 64K of ROM, uh, you know, the service processor. We've used it on the in the host operating system. We've, we've got Rust components that are in kernel. We've been using it for everything at user level. Um, and then all the way up to distributed systems and going up to the, you know, the web console that allows you to provision. Um, and more TypeScript at that kind of very edge to run in the browser um, but basically everything in between is in Rust and that's been really, really important for us. Yeah. Yeah. It'll pay, it'll pay dividends long-term. All right. Well, this has been great. We can go on like this for another couple hours, but I think we have to, <laughs> to stop at some point. Jason, <laughs> any last questions for Brian? 
No, it's uh, it, it's good to see the progress. I've been uh, tracking you guys for for quite some time, and uh, the congratulations on uh, you know kind of the first shipping and the release of the product. It's uh, really exciting, uh, really exciting what you guys are doing. Very ambitious. The uh, the uh, basically the the software and hardware. Um, this this is definitely no no light undertaking, and you know the the companies that have done this level of integration have been exceptionally successful. We mentioned IBM before. You know, when, when you're talking Z-series mainframes, yeah. that's, you know, the perfect, you know, like the just marriage of hardware and software and it being this symbiotic relationship that creates a, really a system. And what I like is that you're using it to solve like actual customer problems, right? And, uh, you know, Apple, yet another, Sun, uh, you know, oh, yeah. there, there's, a, there's a lot of examples. Uh, and the companies that have done it have been highly successful. So I wish you guys all the best. Yeah, right. thank you so much. Well, uh, it, 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 it's exciting. Brian, is there anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, just Jason, I can't resist on on that on your point, just because uh, we did have a when we were doing that initial raise in 2019, um, a, a VC firm did ask us like, what is the kind of the closest historical analog to to oxide? And you know, a, a wiser person would have kind of reflected on that for half a bit. But before my uh, my mouth just immediately in gear and just blurted out the AS four hundred, and they're like, "What?" And yeah. I'm like, "This is one of those moments where the brain is like, did, you, did we just say AS four hundred? It's like, oh yeah, let's let's not say iPhone, pal. Let's say AS four hundred. It's it's like okay, yeah, let's give yeah. them like an, an IBM history lesson. This will be really interesting. Yeah. But the uh, but just to your point about the Z series too, right? The, the, the uh, um, that kind of um, that fully integrated hardware and software, and we, um, you know, we very much students of history and have kind of lionized those those systems. And how can we deliver the advantages of those systems, but in modernity and with in, with respect to cloud computing? And may, I mean, just do what the AS four hundred, frankly, did for databases. Do that for yeah. cloud computing. Um, where the AS400 really democratized the use of industrial uh, compute by being in a form factor that can get in a lot more places. Um, I don't know that we're going to run the Oxide rack in car dealerships, but um, we definitely see a lot of that that, that same kind of opportunity. Um, in terms of, of uh, other uh, sources of information, we have, I know we you say we could go on for hours. We literally could. Um, there's so much that we've done here. Um, and I would really, um, you know, we love your podcast. Uh, we've actually got our own uh, Oxide and Friends, which has been a lot of fun. And I would really encourage folks to check out the back catalog there. I mean, you, dear listener, are obviously a podcast listener, uh, but check out the back catalog of Oxide and Friends, where one of the things that has been exciting for me, and I'm a kind of an oversharer to begin with, so this is very <laughs> natural for me, but it's been really fun to share some of these things that companies don't typically share. So when, you know, when we did, we did board bring up, uh, companies don't talk about what happens in bring up. It's like, you know, you're in like the labor and delivery room, right? Where yeah, yeah. <laughs> like gory things happen in bring up and that nobody wants to talk about. And, and but, nobody uh, wants to look at it again. <laughs> nobody wants to look at it. It's super fascinating. And the reason companies don't talk about it is they don't, want to actually imply the true terror of bring up because if, if if you can't bring it up successfully you don't have a product and um that to me that terror is actually pretty exciting and interesting um so we did an episode on and we did a couple episodes on our tales from the bring up lab where we talk about everything that went wrong in bring up and all the challenges 
um, when we did compliance. Um, we, uh, we, we have the, the oxide in the chamber of mysteries where we talk about going into the chamber. And I mean, if people rarely talk about bring up, bring up, you can at least get engineers to talk about over beers. Compliance is like, no, no, no. What happens in compliance stays in compliance. Yeah. Um, the truly horrific things happen in compliance. Uh, and we wanted to talk about that. So we, to the best of my knowledge, I would love to be proven wrong because I would love to listen to other companies' experiences about this. We are the only company to ever talk about on the record about what we did for compliance, for bring up. And I think from the perspective of, you know, folks that are, you know, listeners to this podcast, you've deployed all this information infrastructure. You're going to find this stuff super fascinating. You're going to understand, I think, a lot better some of the problems that your vendors have not been able to resolve. Um, and we're excited to take people along for the journey. So uh, definitely check out Oxide and Friends. You'll find it wherever you can find podcasts. And uh, we also do it. We record it as a live Discord so people can kind of join in as well. Uh, that <laughs> I'm be, impressed. Uh, yeah, be, and, and, and encourage people to join us. All right. All right. Uh, well, this has been great, Brian. Thanks very much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun and really uh, love the content you're putting out there and the, the demographic you're, you're, you're after. Uh, these are, the, the, you are my people and vice versa. So it's exciting <laughs> okay. stuff. Uh, that's it for now. Bye, Brian. And bye, Jason. Bye, Ray. And bye, until Ray, next thanks. time. <laughs> until right. next time. Next time, we will talk to the system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.